welcome back to Brave New Space. Today we are continuing our conversation with John Tucker. John, what about if uh, we're here in, in Los Angeles and uh, there's a lot of enter- uh, people in the entertainment industry here? If somebody wanted to do a, um, a mixed reality, uh, maybe an entertainment-oriented project, virtual reality, and it had a, um, a connection for space, maybe it was using some space data, would that be an appropriate kind of a data point or, or a company that could, that could uh, apply to be listed on the exchange? Not the exchange, but the directory, excuse me. Sure, sure. I would certainly have to see it, but a, a company that or, or service that leverages uh, space data for their primary product or offering is definitely a, uh, a strong contender to be included in the database and considered you know, a, a new space sort of company. Quickly going back to the, the education service for girls and, and boys in, I said Kazakhstan, it's actually Kyrgyzstan, and it's literally called the, the Kyrgyz Space Program. And they're focusing right now on teaching girls how to, to build CubeSats. But as, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I, I do see that sort of as the fundamental building blocks for growing a space ecosystem in a geographic location that might not have one. It's, it's getting that education in there. And these nonprofit organizations, um, and in some cases, subsidiaries of for-profit companies are doing that around the world. Let's get into a few more of these ecosystems that we don't normally think of as being real space hubs. Are there any other areas like Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan that have been developing a space ecosystem that really most people aren't all that aware of? I think one of the things that most people don't necessarily realize is the opportunity for for space companies and and just the when they, when they think of like the Middle East they they think of oil and a lot of desert but there's a lot of smart individuals and a lot of tech talent that that is there in the region Iran uh, Iraq uh, Saudi Arabia Oman Bahrain um, all have arguably early stage. Uh, but but fledgling space entrepreneurs and startups that that we see coming coming out of that region that's, that's something not many people realize and then kind of going all the way up to to the north uh, Norway Sweden Finland Ireland um, there's there's a, a growing space industry you can say an extension of the space industry up there they're not launching you know big rockets or satellites but they're trying to find what uh, entrepreneurs are trying to find ways to to leverage what the talent of the region is and so there are uh, space software startups Im- improvements to space electronics are are often coming out of those areas that are already very big electronics and subcomponents hubs rockets and satellites need radiation hardened materials and, and subcomponents and these companies are are really trying to uh, find that niche of providing space hard electronic components for for the industry. Have you seen anything in Native American or uh, reservations or First Nation reservations up in Canada? Have you seen any interest sort of like what you shared with Kyrgyzstan, which I think I see the link fascinating. Out of Canada or, or the US, just in the Native Americans popular, you know, if, if there's anybody doing educational stuff, you know, with like kids and CubeSats or um um, you know, I mean, that's probably a community one would not think of where you'd immediately have new space opportunities, but you just don't know. That's a very, very good point. I have heard of space startups in Canada, but I honestly don't know if they are around any of those um, uh, native communities. 
I would be very, very interested in, in seeing them and meeting with the founders. So if anyone out there knows of any um, groups that are connected with any, you know, Native American or First Nation related space activity, you know, uh, let us know and definitely reach out to John Tucker, our guest today. And uh, if anybody is interested in starting up uh, an educational opportunity for the First Nation uh, Indigenous individuals, that is something that, that I could help make introductions for. Uh, there are many organizations that I know of here in the U.S. that bring those space education opportunities even down to the elementary school level that, to teach kids about satellites. And with standardization in, in the, the satellite portion of the space industry through the CubeSat standard, that's become so much easier, bringing the cost down. And uh, I know of elementary schools here in the United States that have built their own satellites and literally have launched, like elementary school students have launched their own satellites. And that's something that we can certainly scale and bring to other communities. That's fantastic. And John shared with us a, um, a link. There's a Patreon page, patreon.com, and look for, it's patreon.com forward slash Kyrgyz space program. And and if you don't know how to spell Kyrgyz, which I didn't, was K-Y-R-G-Y-Z. So Kyrgyz Space Program. And they have, uh, for as little as $2 a month, you could you could help support education with satellite, teaching girls in Kyrgyzstan how to build satellites. Amazing. There was a point, John, that you got to a little earlier there talking about how the standardization of nanosat manufacturing has really opened up new space activities to really anyone, including uh, elementary schools. And that's very, very compelling. Do you see any other any other verticals of the space industry making similar inroads into a greater democratization of the technology? That's certainly the one that, that comes to mind the most. I see a lot of opportunity when it comes to standardization of almost everything in the space industry. The satellite sort of bus standard seems to be a, an easy one to, to get right first. But if you, if you take the analog of the computer industry and you kind of project that forward, you know, when, when we first started building computers as large as rooms, they were one-offs. There was nothing standard about them. And that's honestly been the space industry for quite a while. You know, one type of rocket, and you could only launch that specific type of rocket on a launch pad that was only designed to launch that one thing. And going forward, you know, we, we've started to say, okay, we, we can launch this similar type of rocket on a couple different launch pads. You know, the, the rockets aren't, aren't quite uh, ambiguous with, with the launch pad that they use, but there are multiple launch pads that can service a handful of, of different rockets now. And then you see this, the introduction of the CubeSat standard, which really dropped the cost of satellite building so that even for a couple dozen thousand, less than a hundred thousand dollars, you could build a satellite and work to get it on a rideshare program. One of the next building blocks for, for the space industry in terms of standardization that, that I hope to see uh, relatively soon is software. There still is not a Windows, so to speak, for satellite operating systems. And that's um, what uh, and some friends of the team of ours, uh, by the name of Cubos, are working, you know, hard on exactly. every day. Exactly that standardization in terms of software, because once you have something like that, then you can start standardizing even the the ground support infrastructure and the ground stations and and how the ground stations need to communicate. Which would be absolutely huge, considering so much ground station infrastructure is done through governments, and yep. is 
extremely antiquated and specific yeah and really not up for the challenge of being able to track just the truly absurd number of satellites we're going to see i mean i would i used to say in the next five years (laughs) let's be honest end of the year we're going to more than double the number of satellites in orbit already that's right that's right imagine if you had to have one station for the for the uh tracking and telemetry for each satellite. Oh man! And when you start looking at, at at these constellations, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, no. they, the the closest comparison I could make would be imagine if uh, imagine if cell phone phone providers were you know that limited, and you know one you know Verizon was only responsible for maybe a thousand phones or something like that. Or, 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 <laughs> or the new tagline could be. Um, one phone, one tower, you know, you would have like your own yeah. personal <laughs> tower. It would just be, you'd see a force to the damn things out in the Midwest to be, yeah. So th- this is, this is a little bit of an exercise in absurdism, but it really gives you an idea of just how much room for growth there really is in the space industry across verticals that most people don't really even think of. And the solving the software play is a big one. So one other thing, you know, we're talking about uh, increasing democratization and how that impacts uh, ecosystems and how we can grow new space uh, hubs outside of kind of the United States, which has sort of a monopoly on it right now. Well, the U.S. and Russia, really, and uh, China, sort of. We're seeing launch costs fall significantly. I mean, even if Starship never flies, we're looking at a situation where launch costs have already fallen by a factor of 10 to what the Falcon 9 is able to deliver. Do you see that as being something that is going to, are you thinking uh, these ride-shared orbit services are only going to increase, that uh, costs are going to get lo- you know just low enough to where space access uh, is going to only get more and more diversified ac- across all these different areas of the world that don't have quite the same amount of capital to throw around to start up a space program with the kind of money it used to cost? Yes, I see the cost continuing to fall to an extent. Rideshare programs are, are a huge portion of that, you know, splitting the cost of a ride to space. It's like Uber pool, but, but for, for getting to space. But the, even partial reuse of the launch vehicle is a huge cost reducer. And then the number of times that you can reuse that one booster just even further drops the cost. Um, SpaceX is demonstrating that. Rocket Lab is developing their reuse system by, by catching their, their boosters out of the air as they they parachute back down. I hope to see more of a reuse focus in the space industry going forward. China is investing in some internal space companies uh, to to try and and launch and, and reuse boosters. But I say falling to a point because if you don't have full reusability, then then there's there's like a lower threshold that you'll get to because you'll always have to build a second or a third stage. That, that is then expended. And from the perspective of SpaceX, that's one of the, the reasons why they are trying so hard to get a fully reusable vehicle where the first and the second stage don't have to re- be, be rebuilt every single launch. We've talked about what SpaceX is doing with Starship and what that means uh, for falling launch costs and how that, of course, will mean greater space access. But if launch costs do indeed fall to the degree that SpaceX is talking about, to where it's, you know, $10 per pound to orbit or less, suddenly the capital requirements to get to orbit become very, very low. And while the launch providers are indeed based in the U.S., suddenly countries that normally wouldn't have any ability to access space at all will have the capital costs available to put something, anything into orbit. So 
do you see if we're in that scenario where launch costs are low enough to where relatively small economies uh, could start up uh, and finance space-based companies, which ones do you see as being the ones that could really take advantage of that? They don't necessarily have the physical infrastructure or the capital costs to take advantage of the space economy right now, but they have the intellectual and technical infrastructure for everything else to where they could theoretically be major players in satellite manufacturing or uh, in space services. I think you you need to look geographically for that. If these launch costs drop, then people are or, or countries are going to want to get to space as cheaply and effectively as possible. Mm-hmm. And the even with lower launch costs, you you don't want to try and launch from space when you're in the northern latitudes. So any country that's along the equator, I think, is going to be an immediate like why would we launch from anywhere else because we we get the the biggest boost for for our buck even if those bucks are much lower but we we get the best boost from launching out of equatorial regions so that's that's one of the reasons why rocket lab was was trying to get you know on the northernmost tip of of new zealand as close to the equator as possible that's why cape canaveral is in florida it's 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 closer to the equator than other parts of the us um i see right through the equator, Indonesia, it being a prime launch spot for companies that build low-cost launchers, take them to to equatorial regions, and then those countries build up just the launch infrastructure for them. Maybe we should explain to some people that in launch, the earth spins faster at the equator. So you get, so you basically, you can, you can use less fuel. You you can get a, a basically little performance bump by getting closer to the equator. Just to clarify that, I think some people might not know that. Sorry. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And and I think part of the reason why you don't see launch companies just, why doesn't uh, Rocket Lab launch out of Indonesia? Why doesn't the SpaceX go down to Ecuador and do that? It's the cost of doing that with even the current lower cost to launch it still doesn't make economic sense. But I think once the economics makes sense, then these equatorial countries, all they need to do is build the launch infrastructure and launch companies would, would go. Okay, so a couple ideas came to mind. Why has, you know, China has invested heavily in places uh, with their, their, their Silk Road initiative. Uh, they've invested heavily in, in Africa for um, infrastructure. I wonder if it's on their roadmap in terms of launch sites that might be further south than where China's located. That is quite possible. I certainly can't speak to uh, (laughs) this this is quite speculation, but yeah, a lot of Chinese money has gone to Africa with the Silk Road Initiative. I know there's, there's a a lot of money uh, being funneled to, to Indonesia. The raw materials for rocket building are still kind of away from those equatorial regions. So the supply chain of getting a launch vehicle to those areas needs to be worked out. But as rocket engines become more powerful and more efficient and lower to build, especially if they are being reused, then I can certainly see a world where the economics make sense that you build a rocket in another region or as close to where you're going to launch it as possible and take it over a a barge or something like that to, to the launch site and launch it and either recover or land it, you know, near in that area. Well, that seems uh, not just possible, but probable, especially given that, you know, SpaceX is talking about, you know, Starship being primarily, you know, launched from the sea uh, rather than from a land based site. So if that's the case, then suddenly 
we might see, uh, I guess, what we would call space liners or what have you, uh, operators of uh, starships <laughs> right, or just right. leasing space. You know, this ride-shared orbit model could continue. But if that's the case and launch costs get way low, then suddenly major technology hubs that have quite a bit of uh, capital on hand but not a lot of great geographic infrastructure and certainly are in kind of really bad locations for, you know, launching rockets, suddenly they have a means to be able to get into space and be a far bigger player than they are right now. I mean, from my perspective, that's countries like, well, let's get out of Europe and uh, look into some particularly interesting economies like, say, South Korea and Japan would be, uh, I think, prime contenders for all that. Finland would be able to take advantage of that in a big way, along with the, the Nordic countries who have, you know, if not really, you know, fairly small populations, absolutely horrible locations to launch from unless you're trying to do polar <laughs> or, unless you're trying to do polar orbits, not trying to give our Scandinavian friends a hard true, time. But you're in kind of a really crummy location if you're trying to, you know, hitch a ride on the Earth's rotation. But a lot of available capital, excellent intellectual infrastructure. And the technical infrastructure required to be able to be really big players. Other country, I mean, if we're talking, you know, really low, if we're talking, if we really want to think about the cost being, you know, as low as they're going to be, then maybe we should start looking at uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, and Burma, not necessarily just as people who are hosting the launches, but as countries that can actually, you know, play developing the technology and, you know, being major satellite manufacturers in their own right. I think this is an area of the space uh, industry that we're just only starting to barely come to grips to, what it really will mean when launch costs get this low, and you could theoretically you know, put a launch platform anywhere you want, suddenly a lot of countries that no one would ever think of as space players have the opportunity to be major, major uh, sources of business in the space industry. Absolutely. It, they, they are li- literally poised from a geographic perspective to to uh, tap into this market when it's ready. Absolutely. All right. So once again, we want to thank John Tucker for joining us today. It has been an absolute pleasure getting into not just the logic of space ecosystems that already exist, but where we could see potential new ecosystems and really vibrant ones emerge in the next few years as launch costs continue to come down. And John, where can people find you hanging out online if they want to um, learn more about your your work and, and maybe see any of your other uh, maybe pub, more public communications? Where are you hanging out online? I can be found on LinkedIn under uh, John Tucker, J, at, at J-W-T-U-C-K-R. And you can check out uh, newspacehub.co, and, and which is the, the website for, for the New Space Hub platform. Fantastic. And thank you for our friend, uh, Baron Twice, for, making, uh, for helping make facilitating uh, the introduction today. This is Robert and Keegan from Brave New Space. We wish you well, and we will speak to you all soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Brave New Space. And once again, a special thanks to our guest, Mr. John Tucker. Next time, we'll be getting back into the war in space with special guest Colonel Peter Gerritsen, who's going to be talking to us about Space Force. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon. And I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look.